Good afternoon, everyone. It is Friday, October 29th, 2021, and you are tuning in to our regular webcast from the Missouri Funeral Directors and Bombers Association. It is the Friday before Halloween, so of course, uh, we kind of kind of tried to do a, make it look like it was nighttime here, uh, although it's actually noon as I'm recording this. Uh, and we are back from Nashville. Thank you to all of those who were able to attend the conference in Nashville. We got a great turnout. We had about 40 people attend our Missouri reception uh, on the afternoon that we had that, sponsored by our Missouri Funeral Trust partners. And uh, there was a great turnout for that. We had a lot of funeral directors there from all over the country, learned a lot of stuff. I'm going to talk about a few of those things briefly uh, with you here in just a minute. First off, though, uh, we need to go over a couple things that have been uh, coming up the last several weeks here at the office. And I know I've covered these before, but unfortunately, uh, some funeral homes, enough funeral homes are having problems with these issues that I uh, decided that we need to say it again. First off, the, although the rules have continued to be changing, every time we go over to vital records, sometimes it seems like they have some kind of new rule that we have to deal with. But as we've told you before, if anyone wants to do a affidavit to change a death certificate, do the correction affidavit to change a death certificate, and the person who's signing the affidavit is not the person who signed the original death certificate, Vital Records is requiring a letter. And that letter needs to say that the person who is signing the correction affidavit is authorized to do so. And the, the wrinkle that they've been doing the last several months is that the person who signs that letter needs to be the same person who signed the original death certificate for the funeral home. Now, I can make a real good argument that that's not what the statutes and regulations say, and we may have to push that issue with them at some point. But as you might know, uh, if you've been paying attention, there's a lot of crazy things going on in Jefferson City right now. And so uh, we're dealing with these uh, in order of priority. And since we can solve this problem without a fight right this second, we're trying to do so, at least for the time being. So if you want me to file the death correction affidavit for your funeral home, we need a letter from your funeral home that says you authorized Don Otto to file the death certificate correction affidavit on behalf of so-and-so who died on such and such. And then the person who signs that needs to be the person who signed the original death certificate. That's what we need right now. Maybe we'll get that fixed a, a little bit later, but right now that is what we need. So please do that. The other thing that I hate to have to revisit again, but boy, a number of funeral homes are having uh, issues with it this month for some reason, is confusion as to who the purchaser should be on a pre-need contract. The purchaser on the pre-need contract is the person whose money is being used to buy the pre-need, okay? So if I am buying a pre-need for my mother and I am using my money, not my mother's money, I am using my money, I am the purchaser and my mother is the beneficiary, okay? If I'm in there dealing with my mom and I'm the one the family wants to take over to the funeral home and work everything out and uh, 
get her to pick out what she wants to do. But it's my mother's money that is being used to pay for the uh, pre-need. Then my mother needs to be the purchaser. Now, perhaps I have power of attorney. Perhaps I'm a guardian. Perhaps I can sign on her checking account. I don't care. The mother would be the purchaser because it's her money. What if you got five brothers and sisters? All right. that are And, and everybody agrees we need to do a pre-need for dad. And I'm the one that lives here in town with dad. So I'm going to take dad over and we're going to work out all the stuff for his pre-need. But the person who's paying for it is my sister who lives in New Mexico. And she's it's her money that's going to be used. The sister in New Mexico needs to be the purchaser. Whosever money it is being used for the pre-need, that who is needs to be the purchaser. Some of the problems that we've seen funeral homes having with families uh, over the last uh, month is where uh, a sister, where, where a daughter of the uh, beneficiary signed the pre-need as purchaser, but it wasn't the daughter's money that was being used. It was the beneficiary's brother that was paying for it. Her uncle is the one whose money it was. Well, her uncle should have been the purchaser, but he wasn't. She was listed at this, as the purchaser. Well, the statute says the purchaser is the one who controls the pre-need, not the person, not where the, you know, the doesn't matter who actually where the money comes from. The person who signs the contract as the purchaser controls the pre-need. So in that example, the uncle wanted the money back, wanted to cancel the contract, but he didn't sign the contract. He wasn't the purchaser. The daughter of the beneficiary was the purchaser and she didn't want to cancel the contract. Oh, nasty dispute. I think daughter and uncle are going to wind up in the court somewhere on that one. But that could have been solved if at the very beginning, everybody recognized I'm sorry, daughter, you should not be signing as purchaser because it's not your money. It's the uncle's money that's going to be used to do this. So we should have him come in here and he should sign as purchaser. Whoever's money it is that's paying for the pre-need, that is the person who should be listed as purchaser and that is the one who should sign as purchaser. This also comes into a problem when you're dealing with family services. The whole idea of making a contract irrevocable is there's a couple, there's, there's several legitimate reasons for making a contract irrevocable. The main reason that people want to make a contract irrevocable most of the time is to qualify the beneficiary for public assistance. And remember, the beneficiary of the preemie contract is the person who's going to be buried or cremated or whatever the final disposition is. The purchaser is the one who's paying the money. The beneficiary is the one who's going to be buried. The purchaser and beneficiary can, and many times are, can be the same person. If I'm buying a pre-need for myself, I am both the purchaser and the beneficiary, assuming I'm using my money. If I'm using my money, to buy a pre-need for myself, then I should be both the purchaser and the beneficiary. There's nothing wrong with that. It happens all the time. That's good. But recognize I'm doing that because it's my money. Even if I'm the one coming into the funeral home, even if I'm the one that's deciding here's what I want for my funeral, if my son is the one is using my son's money 
My son should be the purchaser. The purchaser should be the one who owns the money that is being used to pay for the funeral. And you only need to worry about a pre-need for qualifying for public assistance when it is the beneficiary's money, because that's all Family Services cares about. The whole idea behind public assistance is that we are going to, as a government, as a state, as a society, help support this person who needs it. And in Missouri, to qualify for this public assistance, you cannot have more than a certain amount of assets. $2,000 in most cases now, sometimes it's a little lower. It depends on what category you're looking at, but you can only have so many assets. But we're not gonna count some things against you. Some things we're not going to put in that, this is your asset column. We're just gonna pretend you don't have it. And one of the things that don't, they will not count for calculating public assistance is money of the beneficiaries that has been set aside in a chapter 436 pre-need. But if it's not the beneficiary's money, it's none of family services business. That's not an asset of the beneficiary to begin with. So if I decide to buy a pre-need plan for my father and I am using my money, we don't need to make that irrevocable. Why would you make it irrevocable? There's no reason to, because the value of that pre-need plan is not an asset of my father under any circumstances. If the contract it can, it gets canceled, my father doesn't get the money, I get the money. If we don't spend all the money for the funeral, my, my father doesn't get the money, I get the money. My father's estate doesn't get the money, I get the money because I'm the purchaser. It was my money. So if someone other than the beneficiary is using their money to help to pay for the funeral of the beneficiary, then that's not an asset of the beneficiary. It never was, it never will be. There's no reason to make it irrevocable. Now, if I have power attorney over my uh, father's uh, finances and I am using my father's money to pay for my father's pre-need, well, yes, that's a situation where you might want to make the contract irrevocable to qualify my father on public assistance because in that instance, my father is both the purchaser and the beneficiary. Even though I control the money, even though I'm going to be signing the check, it's still my father's money. And so when I sign that pre contract, it's going to be my father is the purchaser. Now, I might sign it on his behalf. I might sign it my father by... Uh, Don Otto power of attorney, or I might put Don Otto power of attorney for my father or whatever the legal situation is. You can maybe have the right to sign it on behalf of the person, but it's still their money. And in that case, yes, you do uh, have a situation where you might want to make the contract irrevocable because family services will say, well, that was your father's money. And unless you lock that up in a pre-need that's been made irrevocable, your father could get a hold of that money. And therefore, we are not going to qualify your father for public assistance. But if you make that irrevocable, we won't count that against him. And so he can get the cheap nursing home bed or the subsidize this or that or whatever it is. But don't do that. Please don't do that when you don't have to. 
Because once you make a contract irrevocable, some of you have heard me say this before, once you make a contract irrevocable, you can't revoke it. That's the er part of irrevocable. So don't do it unless you don't have to. It causes a whole lot of problems. Also, there's no, even in a situation where you might want to make a contract irrevocable at some point, don't do it until you have to. The law says you can make the contract irrevocable at any time. So if a family comes in and says, we're going to use some of mom's money to pay for mom's pre-need, and we want to make it irrevocable because she's going to go into a subsidized nursing home bed at some point. Well, ask, is she going into the subsidized nursing home right now? Oh, no, 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 no. We're just planning for the future. Well, that's a good idea. That family's on top of things. Good for that family. But don't make the contract irrevocable right now. Wait until mom is actually about to go into the nursing home. Wait until they have to have that meeting with family services. Then they can come back in. Then they can make the contract irrevocable. You can make the contract irrevocable anytime. Okay, I know I've covered that before in previous emails. And it's been in the magazine and we've done it at the convention. But my goodness, we've had a bunch of disputes with that this week. So I just had to bring it again. The thing I want to point out to you right now, uh, something that we, and we're going to have more on this. Uh, it'll probably be a, do a whole issue on it in the next magazine is my plan, uh, is OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. Uh, there are uh, a lot of ways a funeral home can get crossways with OSHA, all right? And you need to watch out for those. The potential fine, if OSHA comes in and finds out that you are not following the rules, is now up to around $70,000 if they add everything up, if they hit you with a bunch of things. Now, to be honest with you, most of the times OSHA doesn't hit people up with the maximum penalty right away. They usually give you a chance to try to rectify things. If you're a repeat offender, though, or if you refuse to, to fix things, then you can get hit up and get hit up bad. So you don't want to get crossways with OSHA. You want to be following the rules anyway, but you definitely don't want to get crossways with OSHA. Now, people ask, what is the likelihood of OSHA coming in and inspecting my funeral home? And the fact of the matter is very small. It's a very small chance. It is a very small chance that OSHA comes in and inspects you. OSHA, despite its uh, how well known it is and how many rules and regulations that they have out there, in the great scheme of things, it's not a very big part of the federal government as far as how much personnel they have and how big their budget is. Uh, compared to a lot of other departments, they're actually, as far as uh, their budget and their personnel and how, and they're actually not that big compared to other things. And they got a lot to do. Uh, arguably, OSHA controls the workplace safety for almost every employer in the entire country and might even be able and might even have jurisdiction in some places overseas where a U.S. employer has is, is employing people. Not, not everywhere, but in some places that, that's true. Um, so uh, OSHA has got a really big job and they don't have that many inspectors. They don't have that many people that go out there. What's more is their job's about to get a lot bigger because all of these vaccination rules or testing rules that uh, the Biden administration wants to put on certain employers, 
Those are coming. The reason they can do that is through emergency regulations through OSHA. And so OSHA is going to have to be the one that goes out there to see if an employer has proof that their employees are vaccinated or that they've been tested recently or that they have the exemptions. And you know, as political as the vaccine question has become, there's going to be out there people out there demanding that OSHA come in and inspect this place, that this place is violating the vaccination rules. So the bottom line is, no, it's very unlikely that OSHA will ever be knocking on your door. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't be following the law, but it means it's very unlikely that you'll get inspected. Actually, one of the ways that some funeral homes do wind up getting inspected has nothing to do with they know that you're doing anything wrong. It's that somebody else in your town did something wrong. If you're in a, if you're in a town, particularly a smaller town, and there has been a bad workplace accident with deaths, like a retaining wall collapsed, or somebody got really hurt bad in the factory and a couple, you know, they, the, the safety guards have been taken off machines and a bunch of people were injured or killed. And if OSHA comes in to inspect that place, they have been known to say, you know what? We're already in this town. Why don't we go inspect a few other people too that we don't normally get around to inspect? So they might stop to this place or that place and they might pop into the local funeral home. So that's one thing to watch out for. If you know for a fact there's been a bad workplace incident in your area and you hear that OSHA's come in to inspect that other place, yeah, they might be knocking on a whole lot of doors. What are some things you can do, not only to protect yourself from an OSHA inspection, but to make sure you're following the law in the first place? The first thing is, of course, to have annual training. Now, we know most people uh, uh, have, have issues with doing the annual training. Uh, because it is, uh, they don't know how to do it. They don't know what to do. There are a number of resources out there to do annual OSHA training. Some of them are through the National Funeral Directors Association. Some of them are through third-party companies. We, as a matter of fact, I've got meetings scheduled in the next couple of weeks with the National Funeral Directors Association's OSHA expert. Uh, we're going to get together and we're going to try to work on a package that is affordable and is easy to use that you can purchase at a reasonable price uh, that you can use hopefully over and over again, unless the laws change, then we probably have to do an update on that, uh, to, to, to do OSHA compliance in your funeral home. Don't have that yet, but we're hoping to get that out sometime in 2022. But just document the fact that you have had, at the very least, you got to show good faith effort. Document the fact that you had a meeting with the employees. You went over what to do if there was a, a spill of bodily fluids or blood or chemicals. How do you safely clean up the chemicals? Make sure that you document that the employees know where those safety sheets for the chemicals are. Don't keep things in bottles that are above 16 ounces because if you do and it's a spill, that puts it into a whole other category. If it's in a bottle that's 16 ounces or less, you can classify that as an incidental spill, so long as you cover incidental spills in your annual talk with the, with the employees uh, and say, this is an incidental spill because it's less than this is how you clean it up. You let the employees know that they're entitled to, um, you know, they have medical checkups if they get exposed to blood or bodily fluids. Uh, and this should apply to everyone that might in any way get exposed to that, not just your embalmers, but anybody that might be around a body or chemicals or anything like that where they might get exposed, you should annually document that you've, you've done this stuff. Make sure they know how to use the fire extinguishers. 
make sure they know where the uh, safety, the fire exits are and make sure your fire exits are not blocked. Uh, you know, don't have big boxes piled up in front of the sign that says emergency exit and make sure you're following the formaldehyde rule. Now the formaldehyde rule is uh, something that you should be really checking on regularly, even though technically you don't have to. How often do you have to check your facility if it meets the formaldehyde rule? Well, there is actually no exact rule on that. You have to have tested it once, that's for sure. And you do that by getting the little badges that test for formaldehyde. You should wear one for however many minutes you're supposed to do. You should put one out for long-term exposure. You seal them up and you send them back in. Um, if you did that one time at your funeral home and nothing ever, ever changed at your funeral home, arguably you would never have to do it again. Uh, that's pretty risky. But because one thing, stuff always changes. Did you buy a new embalming machine? That's a change. Did you uh, put in new ceiling tiles or a, a new flooring? That changed. Did you used to have just uh, one embalming table, but now you have two? Something changed. Did you hire a new embalmer? Something changed. So anytime anything changes, you should test for formaldehyde again. All right test for formaldehyde again. Just you get online, go to your normal supplier, you get those kits, you need to do a test for short-term exposure and you need to do a test for long-term exposure. Anytime anything changes whatsoever, you should be doing that, okay? Make sure your bottles are labeled properly. Now, of course, the bottles you get from the chemical manufacturers, they are labeled properly. But once a year, you should be going over with your employees what those labels mean. You see that? You see that uh, picture that has a fire on it? That means it's flammable. You see that picture that has an explosion on it? That means explosive. You see this picture on this bottle and there's chemicals pouring on the person's hand and the hands being eaten away by the chemicals? Uh, don't don't pour the chemicals on your hand. That's that's not a good thing. Yeah, go over all of those safety labels once a year document that you've done that. Show the employees where the safety data sheets are. And if you have an embalmer that likes to mix their own chemicals, they like to have their special little formula together, well, that's fine, but you better label it. That bottle needs to be labeled with all the stuff that's in it and have all the proper safety warnings on it. So if you've got a bottle up in the, uh, uh, the cabinet there that's somebody's special formulation, well, that's that's nothing wrong with that as long as it's properly labeled. There's a whole lot more, and we're going to have a, a rather in-depth article on this in our next magazine is the plan. So I'll look forward for that. Of course, if you have any questions about that stuff, always feel free to call me. If you're a member of the National Funeral Directors Association, you have an OSHA hotline that you can call as well. The most important thing is to document that you've done stuff so that if OSHA comes in, even if they said you didn't do enough or you didn't do everything that you should have done, you've got proof. Well, I was trying. I was doing my best. This is what I did. 
And in that case, there's a good chance to say, well, that's good, but you didn't quite do enough or you should do it differently. And here's what to do next time. And there's a better than even chance, in my opinion, that you won't get hit up with a $70,000 fine. They'll just tell you to do better next time. If you've completely ignored the rules and you've never done anything, you've never tested for formaldehyde, you've never taught people how to use a fire extinguisher, you keep the bottles uh, unlabeled and in great big five gallon jugs in the corner on the floor, well, yeah, you're, you're at much greater risk. Uh, those are all uh, potential bad violations and you don't want to be one caught doing that. Well, I hope you all have a safe and happy Halloween. Don't eat too much candy, okay? Don't let your kids eat too much candy. <laughs> uh, but uh, enjoy yourself. Have a wonderful time. We'll see you next week. And as, I'll, as always, be safe.